Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. With the announcement last week of this year's Oscar nominations, arriving in the wake of a year when Hollywood was clobbered by COVID on almost every conceivable level, when the explosion of streaming raised profound questions about the distribution, delivery, and consumption of film once the plague ends, and when issues of diversity and inclusion in the industry have never been pressed more forcefully or to such apparent effect, we thought it would be a good time to take a look at the state of the movie business in this moment of structural flux and foundational upheaval. And when it comes to the question of Hollywood and change, there are few people better to chop that shit up with than our guest today. Because in truth, few people have affected as much actual change in Hollywood lately as the dude in question, my pal Franklin Leonard. The state of filmmaking in 2021 is deeply complicated. An industry-long history of gross failures of gender, racial, and disability representation, resulting in financial losses in the aggregate nine figures, the rise of streaming, the difficulty of making well anything during COVID. But I remain optimistic, if only because I believe in artists. It is what it is. Franklin Leonard is the founder and CEO of The Blacklist, a company best known for its annual survey of the most liked screenplays floating around Hollywood that remain unproduced. When Franklin first came up with the idea for The Blacklist back in 2005, he was more or less a nobody in the motion picture industry, a junior development exec at Leo DiCaprio's production company, who spent his weekends plowing through heaping piles of crappy screenplays in search for the pony that, as the old joke goes, had to be in there somewhere. But Franklin quickly came to realize there rarely was a pony in there, and so he came up with a novel crowdsourced way to identify high-quality scripts by anonymously asking an assortment of industry executives to name their 10 favorite screenplays of the past year that weren't yet being made into movies, and then publishing the results. Fifteen years later, the blacklist has become a Hollywood institution. More than 400 scripts that have appeared there have been produced as feature films, often in part because of the notoriety of appearing on the list. Those films have earned a cumulative 250 Academy Award nominations and 50 wins, including four of the last 13 Best Pictures, Argo, Spotlight, Slumdog Millionaire, and The King's Speech, and 11 of the last 24 screenwriting Oscars. And those numbers could well increase this year, with one notable blacklist script, Emerald Fennell's Promising Young Woman, receiving five nods, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. At the same time, the blacklist itself has grown into something more ambitious than a survey. It's a website that provides a first access point for aspiring screenwriters to get their work in front of agents, managers, and producers, along with providing evaluation services, screenwriter labs, and live staged script readings. As night follows day, the blacklist success has turned Franklin into a serious player in the industry, but one who has gained his power by harnessing the forces of democratization, by attacking the inherent inefficiencies and the closed loop that Hollywood has always been, and by undermining its entrenched hierarchies, all with the ultimate aim of making the place into more of a genuine meritocracy, not only because that is right and just, he argues, but because it is good for business. Given these predispositions, it is unsurprising that Franklin has emerged as one of Hollywood's vital voices on matters of diversity, which is why he was the first person I wanted to call when the Oscar nominations were unveiled and contained so many historic firsts in that arena. But that was only one of many topics on my mind, From filmmaking in the midst of a pandemic, to the calamity that was this year's Golden Globes, to the legacy of Chadwick Boseman. I was confident that Franklin would have something compelling to say about all of these things, and guess what? As usual, I was right. 
So if you care about movies, the artists who make them, or the industry that produces them, you are in for quite a treat today as we welcome my friend Franklin Leonard to our own little virtual Oscars pre-party here on Hell and High Water. But what an exciting night! <laughs> All the big blockbuster movies that came out of this year are nominated. Parts of a Lady, Irish Goodnight, Mauricio's Delve, Day Planner, Gronk, Ali G Goes to Chicago. <laughs> And we'll be honoring all the fantastic TV shows you binge-watched this year. The American Office, Old Columbos, very one-sided news programs, the Zoom town halls about your school staying closed, and, of course, the Cranberry Juice Skateboard Guy. He's going to skateboard to all the nominated songs tonight. How exciting. So Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are there in the opening of this year's much maligned, horribly rated Golden Globes. And we're here with Franklin Leonard to talk about the state of film on a bunch of different levels. Franklin, good to see you, man. You do. You look good. You're in Ireland. I'm in Ireland. Yeah, I just wrapped a movie uh, last Tuesday. And then my fiance is directing a movie while we're here as well. So we're, we're a two movie household and going to be heading back to the States in April. So the thing about the Golden Globes, which we'll talk about in a minute and the Academy Awards, but the reason I played that sound was because it sort of was a kind of a joke about the state of the movie business at hopefully the end of the pandemic and what's been a weird fucking year for entertainment in general, both on the production side and the consumption side. So I think it's a good place just to start, which is to say the world feels like we're at the end of this terrible year and maybe there's some light at the end of the tunnel now. Is that how it feels for the film industry too? And what's this year been like? from your vantage point, watching the industry deal with the massive challenges. We're an industry made up of human beings, and I think it would be inevitable for us to feel that we were on the verge of the end of something right now. But I think that we're also acutely aware that this is really the end of the beginning. You know, I think the pandemic, the sort of changing consumption habits that the pandemic brought about with regard to streaming and the lack of availability of movie theaters, these were changes that we knew were coming that were accelerated by this sort of unanticipated moment. And I think what happens next is very much as yet undetermined. And I think we all know that there will be a great deal of change and transition coming and how we respond to it is really ultimately gonna tell the story. And we won't know how that story unfolds until it does unfold. At this moment, making a movie and dealing with the still present threat of COVID, what's it like being on set? You know, What kind of protocols have you guys implemented yeah, I mean, the protocols are, are pretty straightforward, right? We're all being PCR tested on a regular basis, depending on sort of your proximity to the actors who can't be masked, obviously, during their performances. It's two to three to five times a week. And then I think we're just hyper vigilant about, you know, we're all wearing masks all the time. We're all making sure to sort of stay in our pods so that we don't expose other people to the possibility that we may be infected. And then, you know, we go home at night and there's really nothing else to do. So we're all on set, ready to go the next morning. You know, it's a bit cheesy, but I think on some level, those of us who are in production feel a great deal of gratitude that we can be. And these additional sort of protocols don't really detract from the, the real joy that comes with having the opportunity to make a film. I mean, that was my overwhelming sense. And I think, you know, in talking to the cast and crew, I think that was theirs as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny when we went back into production on the circus, my show on Showtime in, in August, right? People, you know, there were a bunch of things that happened, one of which was a lot of people thought we were fucking crazy to go back on the road for 13 weeks and try to do it at that point in COVID. But we found a way to work out a set of protocols that basically kept 
we had four crews on the road seven days a week for 14 weeks and nobody got sick. Yeah. And, and we didn't get anybody sick. So it was manageable. The other thing, though, was the consumption side, which was that our, our, our numbers, like a lot of people's numbers, went through the roof. And, and part of it, I think, was that people were like so sick of seeing people on cable talking about politics in their houses on Zoom that like seeing a crew out making shit in the world was like this. I mean, if I forget about whether we were doing it well or not, people were just like, oh, my God, you guys are out there like doing it. And there was a very, very uh, grateful audience for that. And I, I guess I wonder what you think about how for scripted entertainment at this moment, I mean, I know we don't know, we're all being speculative here, but the experience of watching stuff in the streaming world, which is obviously what's gotten the biggest boost in this environment, lots of people watching lots of shit at home. Mm-hmm. There's big questions about what have the theater business about to come back online. AMC just announced they're reopening this coming week across the United States. What do you think the long-term changes are potentially for how the stuff that your business makes gets consumed. And what does that mean for how they then go the return piece of that, of how it changes what gets made, how it gets made. I'm not talking about just in terms of COVID, but just in terms of like the theater business, does it ever come back fully? Is home just now where it's at? I know a lot of streaming companies think that. I'm just interested in your broad thoughts about this whole thing. I don't think that the theatrical business dies. You know, it, it has been falsely predicted for decades that people are going to stop going to movie theaters. And I think that there's something singular about the idea of walking into a dark room with a bunch of people that you don't know and seeing a movie, right? I don't think that's going to die any more than people gathering in, in religious buildings to, to have the experience of hearing a pastor or you know, a rabbi tell them a story about what it means to be human and what life lessons can be had from that. I do think that when you are making a decision about what to make and how to get it to people who might experience it, the default assumption for really the duration of the entire industry was, well, you start in a movie theater, you have an exclusive engagement in a movie theater for X number of weeks. Eventually it was a VHS release, then it was a DVD release, and then it was, okay, well, actually it's going to streaming. I think that default assumption obviously necessarily breaks down and you have to think really strategically about, okay, this is what we're making who is the audience for this thing? How do we best get it to them? And how do we monetize that distribution in a way that makes the investment in making this thing good business? And I'm really optimistic about that because now there are just a bunch of other options and consumers aren't assuming a default where, well, I'll have to go see it in a movie theater or I'll have to wait eight to 12 weeks before it's available for me via streaming or online or on television. There's a massive business opportunity to be had in thinking differently about how we connect content and connect stories, connect films, connect television with audiences. And exciting for me as someone who grew up in a small town in West Central Georgia, it means that movies that I would never have had access to when they came out when I was a kid will now be immediately available to kids like me literally all over the world. And I think that has the potential to change what movies get made in the future, who is making those movies and what kinds of stories we all get to consume over the next five to 15 years. And that, again, is both an amazing business opportunity and incredible cultural opportunity that should benefit all of us. You know, we had Aaron Sorkin on the podcast a couple months ago, and Aaron is one of those people who, like a lot of people in the business, is really like freaking out in a way about the notion that it was grateful, obviously, that Trial of Chicago 7 found a a platform, you know, grateful, but also freaked out about the notion that the cinematic experience might be at risk. And I get that. And yet I also hear the thing you just said, which strikes me as, 
you know, there's obviously everything's a mix of optimism and pessimism and peril and promise. But man, like the taking away of the funnel, the bottleneck of a limited number of screens and a limited number of studios to more platforms, more opportunities, more, more, more just seems to me to be also a cause for a lot of optimism if democratization is part of your thing. And it is obviously a key. We're going to talk about the blacklist in some detail on this podcast, but you know that's part of what your whole ethos has been about is the democratization of this whole business and breaking down these bottlenecks. If this pandemic has helped to do that, sped that transformation, I think there's as many causes for optimism as there are for pessimism. My interest has always been a democratization of access, which enables a true meritocracy that has never really existed in Hollywood, (laughs) right? Right. Because the bottlenecks that have existed thus far prevented the vast majority, like 90% of people from ever having a realistic opportunity to make something and get it to an audience. And as those things break down, now we can actually sort of source talent from everywhere and necessarily with a larger, more competitive talent pool, if we're actually hiring based on merit, we should end up with better movies. You know, I've used this analogy before that Hollywood is a little bit like the NBA right before integration. And all of a sudden, when you're like, wait a minute, black players are playing in the NBA now. We've got Slovenians playing in the A. We've got Brazilians and Argentinians. Necessarily, the quality of basketball is going to get better because you're now recruiting from the best people everywhere and not just the best people who happen to know one of the owners of the teams personally, which is really the case now. You know, it's funny. There have been a lot of people writing about sort of the coming death of the movie theater. And one of the most interesting essays along those lines that I read actually came from Martin Scorsese. Really, the essay was a sort of pian to to Fellini um, and the Italian neorealist, but it opens with this real sort of charge to the world about the death of film in favor of streaming is a dangerous, bad thing. Right. But the thing that I think people miss, and I was something that I would love to be able to ask Scorsese about, is that he himself says that his introduction to Fellini was watching it on television. And that in many ways, Watching it on television was for him a gateway drug to Fellini and to cinema itself. Sure. And I think that we live in a world now where, you know, if I had been a kid and I had seen In the Mood for Love on a DVD on my television back in West Central Georgia, it would have been an invitation to go try to find Wong Kar Wai films in a theater. Yep. And so, again, I think that we make a ton of assumptions about the value of scarcity and about the value and import of the way things have always been without really interrogating whether those things are best for the medium, the best for the culture, the best for the economics of the business, and frankly, the best for all of us who are making these things. Yeah. And I would argue that they haven't been. Totally. You know, I started out with the Globes. I want to come back to them now and just ask you, I mean, like, there's a bunch of stuff to say about the Golden Globes, but just as a starting point, a lot of people looked at that production and thought that it was just a complete goat rodeo. And obviously the ratings reflected that a lot of viewers thought it was a good rodeo too. And then we saw the Grammys, which was great because it was very much like an award show reinvented to this world. When you really saw the difference between the producers who had really thought through what it would mean to make an award show that was tuned to the limitations and opportunities of no audience and those that were still trying to kind of make an old school award show, but just in the age of COVID. So we'll get some first responders and put them at the rainbow room. I mean, right, yeah. just very, very unimaginative. And I think they paid the well, price. Look, I don't, I, my natural instinct is not to give the HFPA the benefit of the doubt, but I hear, uh, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get, we'll we'll get there we can discuss the reasons why in a moment. Yeah, yeah. But I do think that the Grammys had some advantages that the Golden Globes did not. Right. Yeah. Which is that, you know, it's really hard to translate an award show about movies 
that people have already seen or may not have seen into an award show dynamic, especially during COVID. Whereas if you have live music, you are already many, many steps ahead of the game, right? Because even if the awards part is sort of boring, you can always put you know, Cardi B on stage and it's going to be inherently a lot more interesting. Sure. Though obviously attract a ton of criticism from people who are intellectually inconsistent. And, and if you look at the Grammys numbers, I believe the Grammys numbers were significantly down as well. So I actually think that the yeah. numbers reflect more of a broader cultural response to award shows and the difference in the production has more to do with what they were celebrating than anything else. Yeah. But I think that the problem with the Golden Globes has a lot more to do with the organization, how it's structured and the process by which they do what they do. Right. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, yeah, you saw Shonda Rhimes and Eva DuVernay and, and some others, including, I believe, one Franklin Leonard who yeah. came out and just ripped the shit out of the Globes on the diversity front. The notion that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association turned down the opportunity to do the, the kind of customary press conferences for a bunch of movies that had black-led casts, Bridgerton and Girls Trip and Queen and Slim submitted requests through the studio for press conference that were turned down. And of course, it seems like, you know, it was I was stunned, I will say, to learn that of the 87 members of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, what the exact number of black members of that 87 is zero, the big yeah. goose egg yeah. in 2021. I think that's just fucking stunning. I think the criticisms that Ava and Shonda and I and others have levied at the Globes are not exclusive to the Globes or the HFPA. I think that there are criticisms that can be comfortably and factually lodged against the industry as a whole, right? You know, the HFPA is a particularly extreme example because they have zero members of their 87 that are black. But, you know, the Hollywood film industry at the C-suite level is literally the whitest sector of American business. You know, 92% of the C-suite executives in Hollywood film are white. That's more than oil and gas. That's more than finance. That's more than healthcare. And so, you know, again, for folks who are in it, folks who've been paying attention, none of this is a terrible surprise. But I think that the sort of public disclosure, these public revelations to people who make an assumption that Hollywood is this bastion of progressivism that's just not reflected in the day to day workings of the business, I think has moved the needle on a lot of these things. Yeah. So those guys, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, last week, came out and bowed to pressure, which you'd like to think that, that some of these groups would take the initiative on their own, but instead that it took some criticism from you all to now say they're going to have 13% black members by the end of this year. They make good on that promise. They're not just making moves, but they're making them fast. The power of pressure in a righteous cause is good to see, but it does raise the larger question and it, it leads directly as a good handoff here to the discussion of the Academy Awards. I want to play a little more sound. Let's listen to uh, Steve Martin and Chris Rock at last year's Academy Awards. Jeff is here. Oh, wow, great actor. <laughs> oh, man, there, there's so many, uh, so many great directors nominated this year. I don't know, Chris. I, I, I thought there was something missing uh, from the list this year. Vaginas? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Think how much the Oscars have changed in the past 92 years. Yeah, they've changed a lot, Steve. Yeah, they have. Uh, you know, in, back in 1929, there were no black acting nominees. No. And now in 2020, we got one. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing growth. That was 2020, last year's Academy Awards. This year's Academy Awards is going to be different. Nine actors of color getting Academy Award nominations on Monday. Oscar record for diversity in those categories. Last year, of course, was a disaster. And really, the horrible years were 2015 and 2016, which gave birth to the Oscar So White hashtag. I, I saw a great story a couple months ago that was on oral history of 
the Oscar so white hashtag. The premise of it was the hashtag that changed the industry. And of course, 2020 didn't look like it had changed the industry that much, at least in terms of the Academy Awards, but this year looks different. So just let's start with just an overview of that. Walk us through this history, the recent history of Oscar so white leading to where we are now in 2021. I don't know that I'm an expert on it, but any conversation of the hashtag Oscar so white has to start with the person who coined it, April Rain, on Twitter in January of 2015. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the nominations were made and she sort of came out of the box hot with that hashtag and it caught on because very quickly people realized like, wow, yeah, the Oscars are really white. And I think the thing that is important to remember, and I've had conversations with April about this, the hashtag is not Oscars not black. It is Oscars so white, right? This was never about, oh, well, black people should be getting nominated more. It's literally about sort of the white supremacy that's been endemic to the industry since its inception. You know, it's really important for us to remember that Hollywood's first blockbuster was Birth of a Nation that sort of concretized this idea of black men as criminal predators that literally gifted the Klan with the iconography that it used for its resurgence that left thousands of black people hanging from trees throughout the country. You know, the white hoods and the burning crosses came from Birth of a Nation. That wasn't pre-existing to the Klan's iconography. And so and I think more broadly, it's also Oscars so male, Oscars so abled. It really is a, a totem that identifies the places where Hollywood, you know, and broadly we can sort of say the culture of film and television, has not been representative of the demographics, the population of the country. And that's not because there aren't talented people doing great work in this space. Right. It's because those people have not had the opportunities to get accesses to the resources necessary to make content. They are not distributed in the way that white content is. They are not evaluated by critics who you know, speak the same cultural language, have the same cultural references as the people who are telling those stories. And then when it comes to these bodies like the Oscars and the Golden Globes that are meant to sort of assign value and assign merit to things, those folks are not reflective of even the best of those who evaluate culture. And so, you know, in the years following Oscar So White, I think the Academy did do a good job of recognizing that they had a problem. They made a real effort to increase the diversity of the membership. All of the people who have been admitted were, you know, sort of evaluated on the same standards of merit that people have been throughout the history of the Academy, despite people's concerns about the lowering of expectations. And the result has been over time, we're beginning to see some changes in the things that are celebrated, right? Last year, Parasite did incredibly well, best director, best original screenplay, best right. picture, but not a single one of the actors in that film was nominated for an Oscar, which strikes me as very odd, both as a fan of the film and also like, how do you rack up all of those awards without recognizing a single actor in that film? But I think it's also really important to remember, yes, this year is a high watermark for sort of non-white nominees. That does not mean that the problems are solved. Right. It just means that there were nine actors of color who were so good that their performances were undeniable. It is entirely possible that in 2022, we could be back in the same position that we were in because if the systems that need to change in the industry and in the academy don't change, you know, one positive year does not a mission accomplished banner make. April Rain was the coiner of Oscar So White. There's a great thing in this oral history about this where she said, I checked my phone at lunch. This is right after she dropped it for the first time on Twitter. I checked my phone at lunch and it was trending around the world. Hashtag Oscar So White. They wear Birkenstocks in the wintertime. 
hashtag Oscar so white, they have a perfect credit score. Those are both pretty funny. And in this oral history, Spike Lee uh, says, when black Twitter gets on your black ass, ooh, it ain't no joke, <laughs> which is which is true and kind of describes what happened there. It's true. As part of its push for diversity, the first step was we just got to expand our pool in general. Like the academy was small, relatively small. And so, you know, a group that had been locked at a certain size for a long time, suddenly brought hundreds of new members. And obviously with a focus on bringing in diversity and, and a more inclusive racial makeup and ethnic makeup and, and gender makeup of the group. But it does seem to me that like at least some portion of what we're seeing now, which again, as you say, the problem is not solved. It's going to take some time to unravel it. But we are starting to see some signs of progress that at least part of the answer here is just that simple. The academy used to be very small in almost all California. Yeah. Then there got to be more geographic diversity. Then they put in a bunch of new members with a focus on diversity. And you put those new members in, you make a more representative body, and you get a more representative outcome. It seems like that simple on some level to me. Yeah. And that's not to demean it or diminish it, but these problems are hard to fix, but not that hard to fix in some cases yeah. if you just think about it that way. I think that if you look at the history of the academy, the process by which people were admitted to the academy was very social clubby, right? It right. was the branches, you would nominate somebody, there would be a sort of, uh, you know, black box vote, and you would either get in or you would not. And I think it's not difficult to imagine the ways in which those processes result in bias against groups that have been historically excluded. And because you have a for life membership situation, you could have had a good two to three year run in the 60s or 70s, get elected to the Academy and never make another film. And yet you could be a black female director who's made a bunch of films that do incredibly well at the festival route are, are lauded by critics. But people would say, well, you know, she hasn't really had anything that's been in more than a thousand theaters. Well, the reason she's never had anything that's been in more than a thousand theaters is because the same distributors who were in the executive branch said, mm, there's no value to this because no one wants to see a movie about a black woman directed by a black woman. So you have this complex, highly interdependent value chain that tends to reinforce the status quo. And as a consequence, even as the world changed, the industry didn't. I would make the argument that the way in which the Academy has changed in terms of its membership is not a focus on inclusion. It has been a focus on removing the things that have excluded people historically. And I think that that is a critical distinction with a rather significant difference because there were plenty of people in the Academy who had they been black, had they been women, never would have gotten in. And we just want to make sure that the people who have earned their way in by the quality of their work can be members. You know, I will never forget reading an article. It was an interview, I believe, on Deadline, where Peter Bart talked about the fact that in his first year as an executive at Paramount, he was invited to join the Academy because the Academy had placed a premium on getting younger members, right? So it was okay to admit somebody who had only been working in the industry for a year when they needed younger members. But this idea that we would admit members who were black or Latina or Asian or, you know, from the Democratic Republic of Congo, who had made great films that had not necessarily made a lot of money is somehow anathema to what the Academy is. But, well, you've been here for a year and we need some younger members, so come up and join the home team. You know, there's a hypocrisy there that I think a lack of transparency has never allowed us to address, but I think it's high time that we do so. So just a note for history, nine actors of color nominated in acting categories this year, including Stephen Yoon from Minari, who became the first Asian American ever nominated for Best Actor, and Riz Ahmed from The Sound of Metal, who became the first actor of Pakistani descent and the first Muslim ever nominated for Best Actor. 
And then in a category where women have been almost entirely unrepresented historically, Best Director, we have two women nominated this year, Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman and Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, which killed at the Globes this year. Then we also have Judas and the Black Messiah, the first movie ever, ever with an all-black producing team, Ryan Coogler, Charles King, and Shaka King, first all-black producing team ever nominated for Best Picture. So that makes a whole bunch of firsts this year, Franklin, and yet, and yet, (laughs) there's always an and yet when it comes to stuff like this, and yet, I was reading somewhere the other day about the vast disparity in the Best Director category between the budgets of the movies directed by the male nominees and those directed by the female nominees. Like if you take a look at Aaron Sorkin's budget for The Trial of Chicago 7 or David Fincher's budget for Mank, they are exponentially higher than the budgets that Fennel and Zhao were working with on their two movies. And I, I think that highlights the issue that you're talking about, Franklin. It's like we should definitely note the progress that's occurred here, right? But we also need then to dig a little deeper and look at the ways in which there is still a lot of work to be done. The nominations and the awards are all great, you know, <laughs> and they they matter in Hollywood symbolically and as precedent and all of that. But, you know, the underlying economic disparities in the industry on the whole are still <laughs> extremely biased, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I actually have no bone to pick with David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin. I think that as any, uh, any filmmaker should be looking for the most money possible to make their movie, right? Of course. Yeah. And more power to them for getting it. I think that for me, it's less about making sure that they have less money than it is making sure that these amazing filmmakers who are women uh, and people of color do as well. And you're absolutely right, right? Like we've got two women directors nominated for the first time ever, which I think is, you know, there have only been four or five, if that, ever nominated. And to have Chloe Zhao and Emerald Fennell nominated in the same year is remarkable. Riz, Chadwick, Stephen, Viola, Andra, Dan, Kalia, Leslie Odom Jr., Lakeith, and Young Jun for acting. And not, like you said, Shaka King, Charles King, and Ryan Cougar for producing Judas and the Black Messiah. These are remarkable things. But anybody who has seen their work, anybody who's seen their films will be hard pressed to make a counter argument that they did not deserve to be there. And I think the question is, you know, we know across the industry that films about women deliver a better return on investment than films about men. We know that films by and about black people deliver a higher return on investment than quote unquote white content. And yet they still get smaller budgets, smaller marketing budgets, distributed in fewer territories, all based on, you know, a bunch of conventional wisdom that's all convention and no wisdom. (laughs) And the irony is we could all be making more money if we didn't have these sort of racist and sexist marketing efficiencies in place. You know, a lot of people are like, there's a moral and ethical imperative. And certainly there is, you know, culture is, I think, upstream from politics and society. You know, there's this Andrew Fletcher quote that's often misattributed to Plato, you know, let me make the songs and who will may make the laws. We know that there's an effect between culture and society, and we see it every day, most recently with these murders in Atlanta. And yet, even if you can't get on board for that, because Hollywood's a business and business is motivated by profit, make the change because you're trying to get that money. Yes. Um, (laughs) and, and, And yet, the industry hasn't. And really the question that has to be addressed and we have to have a real conversation about it is if we know there's money on the other side of that change, why haven't we made that change yet? We're going to take a break right now and listen to some commercials that support this fine endeavor known as Hell and High Water. And then we're going to come back and talk about the blacklist and market inefficiency and what the blacklist has really been all about for people who don't know anything about Franklin's 
main project for which he's known. We're going to talk about that and then swoop back around to the economics of diversity. So let's take this break and then we'll come back for part two of Hell and High Water. The first lure when I heard about this script, I was playing Khan and uh, in a very different headspace. Uh, and this sort of, you know, uh, what could have been a sort of English scented rose garden of a script kind of landed uh, with, with huge kind of heat on it because it was top of the blacklist. And um, I, I was intrigued by people of taste who said, you've got to read it. Well, including everyone who votes on the, back, the blacklist. That's, 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 that's in case you that. don't know, the blacklist is oh, yeah. published every year the best unmade screenplays. In other words, what people have a lot of uh, interest in because no one actually owns the thing yet. And it's a lot of work and a lot of reading that goes into it. It's an amalgamation of an incredibly large volume of people who are in the industry or somehow affiliated with that world and, and have read scripts and vote for them. So it's a huge pool of reading resource. So it's, it's quite, a, it's a very thorough examination of material. But um, it was very exciting to read for that reason alone. And we're back with Franklin Leonard. That's Benedict Cumberbatch at the 92nd Street Y doing promotion for his Academy Award nominated film, The Imitation Game, about Alan Turing. And Franklin, he's singing your praises. Um, yeah. It turns out there's a lot of people, if you go out and Google people who say nice things about the blacklist, a thing that, you know, 20 years ago didn't exist and now is seen as having not just a big impact, but a large and salutary impact on the industry. And I still think it's the case for a lot of people who aren't huge movie industry watchers and aficionados. Many of them still don't have any idea what it is as witness there when, when Cumberbatch's <laughs> interviewer was like, wait, Benedict, we must now explain to our audience here, even in New York City at the 92nd Street, why, what the fuck this thing is. So I want you to tell the story because it's a great story. Um, talk about your background, how you got to Hollywood and how this idea came to you, how it evolved and what you saw in it in the early moments of it that made you think it was something worth doing. I arrived in Hollywood in March of 2003, so I'm coming up on my 18th anniversary, and I just finished- Born in Georgia? Well, no, born in Honolulu, Hawaii, like another famous American black man. <laughs> and we were actually there on the island at the same time, funnily enough. My father was in the army. We moved around a lot when I was a kid. When I was eight years old, we moved back from Germany to West Central Georgia, Columbus. I was a math nerd. I was basically Steve Urkel while Steve Urkel was on television, You know, a black nerd, not much of a social life. And that's sort of what allowed me to get into Harvard. And I went to Harvard thinking that I would be either a math major or go into like biochemical engineering. I very quickly realized that there's a very big difference between being good at math in Georgia and being good at math at Harvard. And it's like the, tra <laughs> the trajectory towards a Fields Medal or a MacArthur Genius Grant. And more than one of my classmates, by the way, has won a MacArthur in the mathematics discipline. So I yeah. was right to sort of step aside. You're like, um, I'm good I, at algebra, but yeah, uh, it was like, look, you know, I mean, I look, I was really solid up to multivariable calculus and, and linear algebra. As things right. got more abstract, I find myself a little bit unmoored. Yeah. But, you know, so I ended up majoring in social and political theory, a degree at Harvard called social studies. I ran a congressional campaign in Cincinnati, Ohio, right out of school. And then I took a job at McKinsey and Company as a business analyst. And I was there for two years in New York during 9 11. And, you know, about a year after 9-11, my entire analyst class gets laid off with, with six months severance. And I found myself living in New York and spending a lot of my time either watching movies or reading about the film industry, which was something that I had never really considered working in because as a black kid in West Central Georgia, it's not something that you think is 
available to you, right? There, especially in the, the, the early aughts, late 90s, other than Spike Lee, there weren't a ton of examples of people who were black and were successful in Hollywood unless you were an actor. And that, I assure you, I definitely am not. Right. So <laughs> I ended up coming out to LA in March of 2003, really to escape the winter in New York and quickly got a job as an assistant at CAA. I was there for a year and then I got a job as a junior creative executive at a production company. And shortly thereafter, I moved to Leonardo DiCaprio's production company as a junior development executive. And the job of a junior development executive is basically, you know, you're a junior producer. You read every script that's out there, every novel, every nonfiction book in the hopes of finding something that you can walk into your boss's office and say, we should do this or we should work with this writer. And I knew very early on in my career that my competitive advantage was never going to be, you know, being the party guy or the cool guy who had the right friends, but I could read more and work harder than most people. And so I would read, you know, 20 scripts a weekend and I come back and my boss would ask me, did you read anything that I should read? And my answer was always no, because, you know, I'm not going to waste his time reading a script for two hours unless it's really, really good. And most of the things that I was reading were mediocre to bad because writing a great script is difficult. It is an art form. It is a craft. And the people who do it well deserve to be praised. And let's be clear, right? You're working for Leo yeah. DiCaprio at that point. He just made The Aviator. He was a pretty big deal. So you're seeing everything. You're not working in an obscure office that doesn't have no, access yeah. to what is supposedly right. like the hot projects. You're seeing every, right. a lot of shit. Leo was coming off The Aviator and still one of the biggest movie stars in the world, if not the biggest movie star. He was also a white guy between the ages of 25 and 40. Yes. The, and, you know, like so. And, and it's, so of, these, it's like you get a lot of deal flow if you're Leo DiCaprio at that age. That's exactly right. Like, like deal flow is the right way to describe it. We had the best deal flow in the business. And still most of the stuff that I was reading fell in that mediocre to bad category. And I was, you know, at this point where one of two things was happening. Either the job was actually to read and pass on bad scripts, or I was very bad at my job. But ni neither of those two things was sustainable. And my mother would call me every week and ask me if my LSAT scores were still valid. And I really didn't want to go to law school. I mean, in fairness, she only stopped doing that very recently. Um, <laughs> like last week. Not last week, but like not that far off. <laughs> I love your mom. I, I think, no, it was literally, I think literally I had to get into the New York Times before she would stop asking me if I was going to go to law school. But I still get a hard time about not having a graduate degree because now both of my siblings do. <laughs> but so, you know, I, I was at the office late one night and sort of struggling with this reality that I hadn't found anything good to pass along to my boss, which was literally my job. And I think I just defaulted to sort of the, the analytical thinking that, you know, I've been trained in at McKinsey and I think naturally I'm disposed to to begin with. And so I sent an email to 75 of my peers that had a job similar to mine, right? But we were reading all the time. Our job was to find good scripts. And I said, send me a list of your 10 favorite screenplays that haven't been produced yet that you found out about this year. In exchange, I will send you the combined list. I did it anonymously. Almost everybody responded. I ran it through, you know, a pivot table on Excel, output it to PowerPoint, slapped a quasi-subversive name on it, the blacklist, and emailed it out to everybody literally hours before I hopped on a plane to Mexico for a vacation in December. Pause for and one second. Yeah. Why the blacklist? Uh, double reference. It is a conscious inversion. Well, it, it is a tribute to the writers who lost their careers during the McCarthy era. You know, I, in 2005, when the first list happened, I didn't necessarily think that it would become politically resonant again. That's yep. a very weird phenomenon 15 years later. But it was also a conscious inversion of the notion that black as a concept somehow had a negative connotation. You know, I remember sitting in English class in like seventh grade and being explained color symbolism in literature. You know, if the cowboy has a white hat, they're probably the good guy. If they have a black hat, they're probably the bad guy. And even then, I remember thinking like inductively, 
not a fan. And, and I, at the time I was like, you know, one day I'm going to write a novel that inverts all of that. And, and I procrastinate way too much to ever do that. So I look for ways to interrogate language in sort of, you know, sneaky ways. And this was one way I could do it. So I sent the list out, went on vacation. A week into my vacation, I, I went into the hotel business center because that was the era that we were in. It's 2005 and checked my email and it had been forwarded back to me hundreds of times. And then when I came back to LA, everybody's talking about this thing. Where did it come from? The scripts on it are really good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Six months after that, I get a phone call from an agent who's pitching me a new client. Same phone call I would get every day. Hey, I have this new script. I think Leo's going to want to do it as his next movie. I already sent it to Brad Pitt, so you should read it you know, tonight. You know, let me know what you think. But this call ended differently than most calls. And I'll never forget it for as long as I live. Because he goes, hey, listen, don't tell anybody, but I have it on really good authority. This is going to be the number one script on next year's Blacklist. And that was amazing because I had decided not to make another Blacklist. And even if I was going to, it was a survey. So there's really no way you could have six months out a heads up on what would be number one. So literally, here is this agent trying to sell me on the right. idea that this thing that I created had more value than I had realized that it had. That's cool. It's one of those moments that sort of changes the trajectory of your entire career because yeah. then I made another blacklist the following December. The LA Times outed me as the person who had created it. And it's snowballed very rapidly since then. So, you know, the, the year following, Juno and Lars and the Real Girl get nominated for Best Original Screenplay, which was significant because they had been the number two and number three script on the first list. Juno then wins. And really, if you look at the last 15 years of lists, that really has been the consistent refrain, right? There have been about 1,200 scripts on the list. About a third have been produced. They've made $27 billion in worldwide box office, won 50 Oscars from like, all, I think, 300 nominations, four of the last 13 best pictures, and 10 of the last 28 screenwriting Oscars. Yeah. So, you know, I can't take credit for those movies. I have to be very clear about that. But yeah, I think yeah. that we did a very good job of creating a system by which the industry could identify these things that maybe they were overlooking for whatever reason. And since then, Harvard Business School did a study that, that basically shows that all things equal, uh, a movie made from scripts on the blacklist make 90% more in revenue than movies made from scripts that were not on the blacklist. And that's not me saying that, that's Harvard Business School saying that. The blacklist now grown into an institution, right? You guys naturally have a website and a submission process and it's grown. I mean, in 2020, how many scripts did people post on the blacklist site? I have to explain the difference between the annual list, which remains as it was in the beginning, a survey of industry executives right. about their favorite unproduced screenplays. And, and now we're right. surveying about 700 people every year. Okay. In 2012, we built a website that allows anybody on earth to upload a screenplay for a small fee, pay another fee to have readers who we have hired based on their experience and ability to provide high quality professional feedback. And then if the script is good, we not only give you more hosting and more script evaluations, we tell everybody in the industry, hey, this is a good script. You should do something with it. Right. And we've literally seen hundreds of writers from literally all around the world get signed by major agencies and management companies, see their movies get produced. The first movie that was produced from a script discovered on the blacklist was something called Nightingale starring David Oyelowo that was nominated for a Golden Globe and two Emmys. This year is Lebanese nomination for best international feature was a script that was discovered on the Blacklist website and went through our screenwriters lab. There are any number of folks who are writing on various television shows right now that were first discovered because they uploaded their script to the website. And we really look at our goal as identifying and celebrating great screenwriting wherever it is. 
you know, we, we sort of function maybe like the AA, I keep coming back to basketball analogies, but like the AAU of talent identification mm-hmm. for the industry, because historically, you know, when I would come back from talking on panels about the annual blacklist survey, the first question that I would always be asked is, you know, I wrote what I think is a pretty good script, but I didn't go to USC or Harvard. How do I get my script to somebody who can do something with it? And I would come back and ask people who had been in the industry longer than me, like, what is the answer? Surely, in an industry that is so reliant on good storytelling, we have a system in place to identify talented storytellers so that we can then turn their storytelling into profit. And the answer I always got was, was well, you know, you can enter the Nickel Fellowship, the Academy Screenwriting Competition, and if you place in the top 100, someone will probably call you. Or move to LA, get a job at Starbucks, and then network until someone pays attention to you. And, you know, as a black kid from West Central Georgia, I'm acutely aware of the ways in which those kind of access issues really pervert a marketplace for labor. And the consequence of that is you don't have the best talent, you don't have the best meritocracy, and the financial outcomes that your entire industry is capable of are almost comically suboptimal. Right. It's an incredibly inefficient market for a variety of reasons we could spend a long time talking about, right? Mm -hmm. One function of what the blacklist does is, and this was the initial thing, right? Is kind of like, there's a haystack, there's some needles in it, helping the industry to find needles in a haystack, right? Yeah, we are the only metal detector in the industry. Then there's this other thing that's what you just described that you've evolved into, which is, first of all, the haystack turns out to be in a locked barn. And so how do we unlock the barn so that like, if I have a needle and I want to throw it in that haystack, I have access to the barn that I was previously locked out of. So now we got more needles in the haystack, and then we're going to also still help the industry to find the needles in the haystack. So there's a large scale democratizing force that you guys are trying to bring about, like, you know, unlock the barns, Mm -hmm. make the haystack something that I can throw my needle into. And there's this other function, which is still curing for the market inefficiency of how do you find good stuff amid a lot of shit, which is, you know, the nature of anything in a talent and a creativity driven business. Most of the stuff's going to be bad and and finding the good stuff is how you win, right? In In a business, which is what this ultimately is. You have that business mindset, which is, you know, there's a lot of values in play here. It's always great to talk about democratizing things. It's always great to talk about inclusion. It's always great to talk about diversity. But in the end, if you can find an economic motor to drive that shit, that's the win, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I've I've been a black man in America for my entire life. And so I'm acutely aware, aware of the ways in which capitalism drives almost everything we do. And I think especially in Hollywood, which is a business, right? There are other places in the world where it is not purely a business and it's not a purely profit driven motive, but in Hollywood, it definitely is. And so, you know, if the business is what it claims to be, which is profit driven, if you can then prove that X equals more profit, then everybody should be on board with X. And if they're not, then you have a case to make that there's a real problem there. It's like you guys are so driven by this other thing that you're willing to cede X amount of money because you want to preserve this other thing. It's a strange thing to say that I'm idealistic about people's greed, But in some way, that's what I'm saying is that I'm optimistic that greed is enough to drive certain behaviors, whether or not the morals and ethics are sort of, you know, locked in step with that. Let's play this little bit of sound from Promising Young Woman, a movie that's nominated for five Academy Awards in the 2021 Academy Awards, five nominations, including Best Original Screenplay. Here is a clip from it with two of its stars. Daisy. That's me. Dean Walker. Please sit. 
My assistant says that you are interested in resuming med school. That's right. May I ask what prompted your desire to get back to your studies? I guess I couldn't stop thinking about my time here. Yeah, that's an extraordinary place. It's an unusual request. Yes, but I left under unusual circumstances. Oh. I left because of what happened to Nina. Hmm. Nina Fisher. You don't remember her? Maybe you remember Alexander Monroe? Oh, yes, Alexander Monroe. He actually just came back and gave a talk here. Oh, he's a, he's a really nice guy, really smart. Are you a friend of his? No. So you don't remember the accusations made against Al Monroe? I don't. He took a girl, Nina Fisher, the one you don't remember, back to his room where he had sex with her repeatedly and in front of his friends while she was too drunk to have any idea what was going on. She was covered in bruises the next day. Handprints, I guess you could say. Was it reported? Yes. Do you know who Nina spoke to? You. So that's Carrie Mulligan, who is the lead in the movie Promising Young Woman, talking to Connie Britton. The movie is written and directed by Emerald Fennell. I just watched it a couple nights ago. And the reason I played it is because I think that's a, it's a fantastic piece of writing. It's a gripping scene that sets up some of the drama in the movie. But it's also illustrative of just the quality of, of the writing that the blacklist identifies. And, and this is the most prominent example of something in this year's Oscar nominations that got featured elevated on your platform, Franklin, on Blacklist. Walk through the mechanics of how that script, like what happens from Emerald writing it to it getting through the Blacklist process and then it gets made and now we all know about it because of this nomination. I probably don't know the specifics of A Promising Young Woman's processes as much as I probably would like to, but here's what I can say. Emerald was a very successful actress in the UK. She was represented by American representation, both as an actor and a writer. That script circulated widely throughout the industry. It was voted on by 30 executives as one of their favorite scripts of that year, which I believe was 2018. Yep. At the time, Margot Robbie's production company, which has produced a number of Blacklist scripts, was already attached to produce. And I believe Film Nation was attached to handle sales and potentially partially finance it. I don't know if Carrie Mulligan was already attached at that point, but I, I do know that typically when scripts are on the annual list, it, it sort of catalyzes a process by which a lot of people read this material if they haven't read it already. And it also provides a, a stamp of approval that, hey, you're not the only one that likes this unusual thing, right? In this case, a revenge thrower sort of squarely in the Me Too mode. And that if you make this thing that a lot of other people like, it's highly likely that audiences will respond in the same way that executives did to the, the script. I believe it premiered at Sundance last year. It's a rather significant critical response. And, you know, it sort of run the table in the Oscar campaign. I mean, Emerald and Carrie are both nominated. Well, Emerald is nominated, I believe, for Best Director for the BAFTA as well. And I think rightfully so. It's funny. I like when you say, I don't think I really know that much about this, but let me see what I can recall. And of course, you know more about it than probably the people who made it. Well, I mean, look, <laughs> I, here's the thing. There are others that I probably know better. Looking over the last year and a half because of the pandemic, you know, sure. time and timelines become very elusive. I just think it's funny. I, I knew you'd be like, well, I don't really know that much about this, but you know enough to give a sense of the sequence of how that thing kind of unfolds in a way that benefits the creators in trying to get this thing 
out the door. It's really fucking hard to make a movie, really hard to get a movie made and get a movie yeah. out there in the world and let alone to get it a nomination like this, which will now mean it can seen by way more people than it would have ever been seen by before. And the blacklist has done this time and time again. Let's take another break, listen to some commercials again, come back and we'll talk some more with my friend Franklin Leonard, founder, creator, presiding genius at the blacklist. So stick around and come back after these messages. In order to be blacklisted, you actually have to have had the opportunity to have been identified as someone blacklistable. And often if you're black, you're not invited onto that list to begin with. And therein lies Franklin's genius. The leveraging of the power of community to force open the doors of that community itself to new voices, new people, new ideas. It's an incredible hat trick. Crowdsourcing that forces or, uh, 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 or allows an often insular crowd itself to change its own identity, to diversify and open itself up. So that was James Seamus at the Writers Guild Awards back in 2019, singing the praises of our guest today on Helen Highwater, who we're back with now, Franklin Leonard. It's always nice to have people say nice things about you, especially when you're dressed in a tuxedo, right? I have to say that was probably the high point of my professional career, getting an award from the Writers Guild, right. an award that is specifically for people who have elevated the honor and dignity of screenwriters from James Seamus, who arguably is one of maybe five people who, without whom I would definitely not be in the business. Like he is one of my heroes in like eight different ways. And for him to describe his understanding of the work that I'm doing in that way was I, I, don't, I don't know if I'll be able to top it in my professional career. It was a really uh, emotional, emotional night for me. For those who don't know, James Seamus is? James Seamus is a writer, producer, studio executive, professor, activist. He's a sort of creative partner to Ang Lee. He ran Focus for years. He teaches at Columbia. He's just one of the gods of New York independent cinema. It's just, it's like him and Christine Vashon and Spike Lee. Like those are the three people that I looked to before I joined the industry and said, I want to be like them someday. And to have him on stage at the Writers Guild saying that I had done these things was frankly mind blowing. And I'm still not entirely sure I deserve it. Well, I think you deserve it, but I can see why that would be mind blowing. And I will say you looked a little mind blown uh, when you came up and took the microphone after he finished. As I said, I want to talk more about some of this diversity and inclusion stuff. And I know you get kind of stereotyped and pigeonholed as like the diversity guy in Hollywood. And you've at various times kind of bridled at that. But given a couple things that you're doing right now, you're kind of wading yeah. into that world in a pretty aggressive way. One of those ways that you've waded in of late is this study that you helped instigate at McKinsey, your former employer from a long time ago, back when you still... Uh, we're doing things that your mother probably approved of more than what you're doing now. You asked McKinsey to look at these questions. And again, very much in keeping with our conversation here, trying to think about in a McKinsey-like way, yeah. what, the, what are the real costs of the lack of diversity and inclusion in Hollywood? Just talk about the instigation of that and then the result, because they've come out with a report that is actually pretty mind-blowing. So last year, in the wake of the murders of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd... You know, early June, June 2nd, right, was Blackout Tuesday, and, and all these black tiles were filling my social media feeds. And I remember sitting there getting very frustrated because I was like, you know, I'm seeing all these black tiles, I'm seeing all of these corporate statements of solidarity from media companies, but I'm also acutely aware of the way in which the sort of day-to-day -day of Hollywood works and what the consequences of that are, right? When 64% of the gang members in Hollywood films are black, but the Justice Department says that only 34% of the gang members in America are black, you know, without absolving them, it's not 
difficult to understand how folks like Derek Chauvin end up thinking that George Floyd is a criminal threat. And again, that goes all the way back to Birth of a Nation. And all of the Black folks in Hollywood have been saying this for a long time. This is not new information, and the revelations of the McKinsey study were not new per se. And there was a group of us, the sort of loose, we're a loose affiliation of Black Hollywood folks and under the name the Black Light Collective. And you know, we were looking for solutions, like how do we solve the problem that now everyone's starting to acknowledge? And McKinsey came out with a public commitment to basically do $200 million of pro bono consulting, specifically focused on sort of racial economic equity. And so I reached back to them, my former employers, and said, hey, if you want to study racial economic equity, one place you can do it is Hollywood. And in the same way that sort of what we do in Hollywood reverberates out to the rest of the world and has an effect on these issues in the rest of the world, solving those issues would presumably have an amplifier effect as well. So how about you guys tell everybody, because you're McKinsey, you're the people that these companies hire to solve these thorny business and organizational problems. How about you tell us what the situation is and tell us how to solve the problem, right? So I, I, I think it's important that I say, like, we were not inviting McKinsey to condemn the industry. What we were really doing was getting McKinsey to work for free, yeah. not just for Black Hollywood, but for Hollywood as a whole. And what's amazing about that is, is that, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, they came out with a study that's essentially a treasure map. There is $10 billion available every year if we can find a path through these things and solve it. And that's just addressing anti-Black, you know, racial animus. If we include the Latina community, the Asian community, the disability community, the LGBTQ community, who knows how much money there is, but we know that the floor is at least $10 billion right. a year. And here's a map to that treasure. I want to be clear about your language here, right? Mm -hmm. When you say $10 billion available, what you mean is that if Hollywood could crack the code on some of these issues, address the kind of racial inequities in the business that McKinsey's saying, annual revenue could go up by $10 billion. That's correct. That's like the what the delta could be in terms of what the industry brings in. What they said is at least $10 billion a year in annual revenue, a 7% delta above its $148 billion a year annual revenue. I would actually argue, by the way, and sort of having been deep in the numbers with them, that there's actually a lot more than $10 billion annually available because that's just the film and television delta. Sure. It doesn't include, for example, lunchboxes, Halloween costumes, right? Like I remember before Black Panther came out, that Halloween, I desperately wanted a Black Panther costume and preferably not the Black Panther, one of the other characters that I'd seen in the trailer. Those costumes weren't available. And the reason why is because they underestimated the demand for them. How much money would Disney have made if they didn't underestimate that demand? And so I would argue that in the same way that we've seen shifts in music and that Delta is a lot larger, I actually consider 10 billion to likely be the floor of the revenue that's available. But, you know, we'll see. So the study basically talks about a bunch of specific, very Hollywood phrase here, pain points yeah. uh, for black creators and black talent. I'm sure that most of the pain points that they lay out were not surprising to you, given your life and your career in the business and, and your highly perceptive observation of how things work. Now that you've gotten McKinsey with all of its kind of credibility and prestige to give its imprimatur to this and say, yeah, this is not just speculative. Here's the fucking numbers, guys. It's a useful thing to have. But what's the mechanism by which 
any of that could become implemented in an industry that is as resistant to change, not totally resistant, but resistant to change, slow moving, inert that Hollywood is. I don't want to give away too many of the cards that we hold as the Blacklight Collective, but suffice it to say that, that we have some strategic approaches in mind. But the study talks at length about the black tax, right? This, this notion that not only do black Hollywood creators and executives have to create and be executives, but we also then have to make the argument for our own humanity and for our own deservingness of being in the room. And so I think the real question is, knowing that there is this treasure map and knowing that McKinsey has provided explicit instructions for how to claim that treasure, you know, whether it be you know, setting intersectional diversity targets on screen and especially off screen, expanding recruiting beyond traditional top tier universities and film schools, tying executive compensation to success on diversity and inclusion realms, you know, creating ongoing financial incentives up and down the talent pipeline to meet the need for this diverse content. And I think the biggest one, and the one that I think that will probably have the most success is, you know, creating an independent advocacy organization that is focused specifically on advancing racial equity within the industry. You know, one of the conclusions that the McKinsey study came to, which I think is probably the most interesting to me, is that Hollywood is a unique interdependent value chain, more so than any other industry in the country. And that as a combination of that and the fact that we don't sort of have traditional human resources structures on individual projects and you have a sort of freelance nature of work, uh, one company alone can't solve these problems. So even if you are good within your company for DE&I, it is likely that your diverse employees will not succeed long-term even within your company because they're still reliant on other companies that may not be good on the diversity and inclusion front. But here's the big question. We now know and have McKinsey's sort of seal of approval on the fact that the industry could be making a lot more money in annual revenue. My question is, how long will corporate boards and shareholders tolerate suboptimal sort of business outcomes when it's clear that there are better business outcomes to be had? And we've always heard on many fronts like, well, it takes time. Time is money. And now we know how much money, and it might be even more. So again, how willing are you to accept those market inefficiencies and the loss that you're taking? And I think that'll be revealing, if nothing else. So one of the things you're doing that's very specific is this collaboration with Macro, Charles King's outfit and Warner Brothers, right, to launch a feature screenwriter incubator for black writers, right? Writers of color. That seems like a very natural fit with the blacklist as a natural outgrowth, but just explain what that, what that endeavor is and what you hope to accomplish. Yeah. So basically the idea is that we have this database of screenwriters who are hosting their scripts and getting feedback. And we're working with Macro, who produced most recently Judas and the Black Messiah, but a number of other extraordinary films and television shows, to identify one writer who will get paid $10,000 to work with us to develop a feature film pitch that we will then take to Warner Brothers and specifically Nyjah Kukendall, who's a black female executive vice president at the studio. And if she likes the pitch, that writer will then be paid WGA minimum for a two-step deal, which is about 100K, to go off and write that feature script. The idea is that the industry as a whole is historically reliant on agents to tell them, like, these are the writers you should be paying attention to. But there are a lot of other great writers who are outside of that system. And traditionally, writers of color have a more difficult time accessing the agency world. So we're just going to go direct to consumer and say, if you have a great script, submit it via the Blacklist website. We're going to choose a short list. We're going to interview those people. Then we're going to choose one person and put them in the best possible place to succeed. 
here's the other cool thing about it though. One, we and Macro are providing 500 opportunities for writers to access the Blacklist platform, which normally costs a little bit of money. We can access it for free. They can get a month of hosting and a script evaluation on the site totally for free. And by the way, even if those writers are selected as a shortlist, they aren't obligated to take it. They may get signed by an agency. Another studio may come and say, hey, we love your script. Can we buy it? They can take advantage of all of the upside of being on the Blacklist website and submit via this macro opportunity. And the fact of the matter is that the macro opportunity is but one of many sort of things we provide along those lines. Right now, we have a partnership with MGM to find writers from historically underrepresented communities. And once every six months, they're going to choose one writer to get a two-step guild minimum blind deal as well. Um, and that's you know four times over the next two years. It's super exciting to see so much stuff happening on all these fronts and obviously super exciting to see you in the middle of so much of it. Um, I feel like it's be remiss not to at least ask a question about this. You know, we've had a we had a horrible week last week with respect to these murders in Georgia. Yeah. And it, we're having a moment where people are looking up and realizing the degree and depth of anti-Asian American racism. The Georgia killings have kind of spurred a kind of another moment of reckoning, the one that's long overdue. It's a category of racism that has not gotten nearly as much attention in recent years, but it's clearly out there. And it's also the case that, you know, you look at a movie like Crazy Rich Asians and it comes back to our discussion about, you know, how many Crazy Rich Asians are there out there that haven't been made that could have made a lot of fucking money for Hollywood if it wasn't for systemic racism towards Asian Americans, you know? And I, I just want you to kind of reflect for me a little bit on whether we are now about to see kind of a similar moment again in the, in the, in the entertainment industry in particular, the racism in its midst, the one that's directed towards Asian Americans and Asians more broadly. I think one of the problems that Hollywood has is that it assumes a white default and it assumes a white default for Americanness specifically. And so just as there is sort of underfunding, under support, undervaluation, under distribution of, of black content in Hollywood, I would suspect I haven't run the numbers, right? I've actually encouraged McKinsey to do this for other communities as well, because I think they'll find some more things. Um, I can't get out of my head the fact that the Golden Globes didn't recognize Minari as an American film, yeah. right? That somehow a, a story about a Korean American family who moves to literally the American heartland to start a farm. If there's a more American story than that, like literally go west, young man, find your plot of land, grow things on it and become one with the land. That is the American story. And the idea that they could only perceive that as something foreign and other, I think goes to the core of this. I think we also have to take a step back and acknowledge that most of the victims in Atlanta were Asian women, Asian American women. And I think this is an intersectional issue as it applies to, to this specific event. There has been an unconscionable rise in violence against people of Asian descent in the U.S. And I think some of that has to do undeniably with the rhetoric and with the characterization of the former president and his party as it applies to the coronavirus and it somehow being connected with Asianness, which is absurd. It is a virus. It has nothing to do with any individual human being or a people's. But I also think we have to talk about how Hollywood has presented women and presented Asian women specifically within the culture and therefore how they are perceived by men and by white men specifically as having value and, and what that value is for. 
And I think it's not a long road between the sort of historical stereotyping as the dragon lady or the butterfly and the events of last week in Atlanta, because this guy thought that he had to eliminate the temptation, right? Someone on Twitter said, Atlanta is a city awash in sex work. He went to these specific places to kill these specific women. It was not just about sex work. It was about these women. And I think the culture has created an environment that devalues and dehumanizes certain kinds of people. It makes it a lot easier for the police to say, oh, he had a bad day, rather than to say, oh, these women had a bad day, their families had a bad day, and will have bad days possibly for the rest of their lives. The, the default point of view, the default perception of who has humanity and who has agency right. has never been them. And, and I think Hollywood has a lot to answer for in that department. I agree with everything you just said. And I want to, but I do want to end on a more upbeat note, although this is going to seem like a, not an upbeat note, because I want to ask you about the death of Chadwick Boseman, just because, you know, he's, yeah. you know, everybody thinks the front runner to win this best actor award for Ma Rainey. He's, you know, he's posthumously on a run of winning awards. And you mentioned obviously Black Panther. I'm willing to bet that Boseman has a, a special place in your heart. I, I'd love to hear you just reflect on his legacy a little bit, because Obviously, his losses, it was a huge loss for America, I'd say, but certainly for the film industry. And I can imagine all the great black portraits that he would have painted as an actor going forward. But talk a little bit about why Chadwick Boseman matters so much. I don't just don't know. I don't know a black person I've met who's a movie fan who's not in some way deeply connected to Chadwick Boseman. And I, I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about why that is and what his legacy has been. It is. I knew Chad personally, but not well. But he was always someone that I sort of looked to as a kindred spirit. I mean, we both grew up in small towns in the Deep South. We were roughly the same age. And he sort of came out of nowhere and ran off this like seven-year period, right, where he plays Jackie Robinson, James Brown, uh, the Black Panther, and Thurgood Marshall, right? And the last conversation I had with him, and it, it's it's... It's sort of tragicomic in retrospect. It was after the Oscars, maybe two years ago, three years ago now. And I was like, you know, are you going to let anybody else play the great black historical figures? Like you've taken them all. And he was like, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it, it'll be fine. And, and in retrospect, I, I, I now know that he knew that he was sick. Right. And I think the thing for me about his legacy is that, you know, none of this is promised that we get a limited time on this earth to, to do whatever it is that we do. And there is a value in burning bright and doing it authentically because there is the potential to change the way that people see the world within this very weird, very cloistered, deeply problematic business that we work in, right? I, I can't comprehend the role that Black Panther will play in the self-image of Black kids around the world. It is literally outside the bounds of my comprehension. It is outside the bounds of my comprehension, the way in which the perception of Black people who are not Black, having seen Black Panther, changes. There's this amazing sort of man-on-the-street interviews in South Korea and China after people had seen Black Panther. And they all loved it. And they were like, this is incredible. We'd never seen black people on screen like this as scientists and, and, and politicians. And they were like, well, how do you normally see them? And it was like, you know, as athletes and musicians or criminals. And so, you know, when I think about his legacy, I just, I think about the full humanity of black people. 
and a representation of the full humanity of black people at its most joyous, most talented, most creative, and, um, and most unapologetic. And he will be missed tremendously, not just by me and not just by Black Hollywood, but by everyone who had the opportunity to, to see his greatness. I think we all <laughs> rightly feel robbed of, of the decades of performances that he would have given us. But on the bright side, and I think this is the other thing about his legacy, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of kids like him from places like where he came from who will do what he did and maybe even exceed his heights because they saw it as possible because of him. And that is the future that I'm most excited about. Thank you, man. I appreciate My you. My pleasure. Helen High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Franklin Leonard for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Helen High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Helen High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 